Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Dr. Ron Dolan. Ron has had a fascinating and dynamic professional journey. A math and physics major, he began his career at the high-energy physics lab CERN in Geneva. He went on to earn a PhD in computer science and became one of the first 100 employees at Google, where he worked for a number of years. Having a deep interest in morality and ethics, Dr. Dolan then decided to go to law school and pursue a legal path. He became a law professor where he's taught legal tech classes at Stanford, Notre Dame, and Harvard. Today, Dr. Dolan works with ODR.com to understand how AI can help the dispute resolution field improve its quality of services. In addition, he's a private investor in legal tech startups. In our discussion, Ron speaks about going from Google to law, his love for teaching, the importance of quality metrics as lawyers use generative AI, and his work at ODR.com. Hi, Ron. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking time to join with us. That's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So let's start. You're currently Chief Innovation Officer at ODR.com. But before we get there, let's go Let's go back in time. So you're a math physics guy. You get to work at CERN. You get a doctorate in computer science. You go to work for Google. In fact, you're one of the first hundred employees at Google. Yes. And you decide to become a lawyer. Right. Tell us about that. It seems like it seems like a right. It seems like a right normal career. <laughs> um, I have to say that the, the the engineers at Google, in all honesty, they're so stellar and they're just so far beyond my capabilities. And I felt like it would be worth it for me as a gift to my future self to pick up a second set of skills and to integrate. Right. So. I was better off to be able to to work in like a an interdisciplinary area rather than just focusing on one area. You know, I had, within physics, I uh, my love had been theoretical physics, and I'm just not going to be able to do that. And within the engineering, I was just saying, you know, again, like working with what I consider to be the top engineers, world class, right? I'm okay, but uh, I just thought it would be more interesting to uh, to pick up something else. Why the law? So. I had been working uh, towards the end of my time at Google on computer security, uh, hardware, software. And uh, at one point, we were talking about maybe, you know, like people stealing things with uh, thumbnail drives and taking software out and being able to look through people's backpacks. And the question kind of came up as to a selective enforcement, right? Did we want to just have a policy that you could look through everybody's backpack? And I, I had some negative feelings about that. It felt like if there wasn't some sort of causal conditioning for that, that it was potentially prone to abuse. And then it crossed my mind that that really wasn't any different than a lot of other things that I could think about with law. And uh, I realized that I actually had a lot of strong feelings about law and legal policy. So it seemed like as I was looking for something else to do, uh, law was actually quite captivating for me. I was also as always, looking at a lot of issues related to personal ethics, uh, morality issues, and in particular, the way that individuals in society kind of come to an agreement about what's tolerable. And I realized that that's, you know, that's law. You know, we have uh, various degrees of punishment. We have things that are norms, but not law, etc. Uh, you have laws around traffic that's not a norm. 
Uh, so what do we allow or disallow and, and how is that enforced? So law became appealing to me for many reasons, really none of which had much to do with the practice of law as a, as a practicing attorney for people. It was much more the study of law and legal systems. That's a fascinating reason to go into law school. What was your experience at law school? Because that's not the mindset most people go to law school with. I don't know if any of us really knew what to do with each other. Uh, <laughs> me, the, 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 you know, I felt like sometimes Austin Powers going jumping into this weird area and, oh, they're still taking classes. Oh, that was so long ago. Or the teacher's not quite knowing uh, what to do. Or the fact that I wasn't really there for, you know, having to get good grades or whatever. And uh, so, it, you know, it was a little bit of a fish out of water. But at the same time, I had a lot of worthwhile things to say. I think I had to teach myself to just calm and chill in the beginning when I was asking too many questions and didn't want to be that student. Uh, so I was <laughs> able to kind of rein it in and then just be a little more selective. But uh, somehow towards the end, like I did make a difference. I, at some point, I uh, went in and talked to the dean about the, the fact that there was no IP concentration. And we started it while I was there. And oh, that's uh, awesome. it had gotten stuck. And I, and I helped push it forward by asking to go talk to the board because I was seeing no progress. Somebody was blocking it, one of the faculty, and uh, it got unblocked when I went in there. I, I came in with my suit and tie to the dean's office and, and a resume, and I said, I want to talk to the board about this. And uh, basically, it just forced going back to the professor that was blocking it and really kind of making them justify why we wouldn't do it. And now they have it, and, and it's great to have that there, right? So That's awesome. The, the dean must have loved you. I would, I would, she did. Uh, she did. No, I, she I, went, I, that, was a ser yeah. that was a serious question because most law students don't have that interest in sort of the pure academic policy, societal issues, and most don't bring the maturity to it that you, you clearly did. I, I, I think she was appreciative. I think she thought that they needed it. She went on to Notre Dame and, uh, you know, Nell Newton, I don't know if you know her, and uh, I ended up teaching over there after I, I taught a class at Stanford. And then I taught at Notre Dame and then ended up teaching the class at Harvard. And so, you know, Nell really encouraged me to come out to Notre Dame and, and teach the class there as well. So it was, no, it was, it was good. We, um, we, we were very fond of each other. I think she did a great job. I think she continues to. So, How have you enjoyed the teaching part? I know you teach some variation of technology and the impact on the law and informatics. Did you enjoy teaching? You know, I, I have some mixed feelings about it. Uh, sometimes it depends on the students. Sometimes it depends on my mood of the day or what else is uh, distracting me. But overall, it's a gift to be able to teach. And I am in contact with several of my former students, some of whom are just doing phenomenal work at Stanford, at Harvard, et cetera. And uh, one of them went off, is now in medical school and, and has a, a one-year-old. It's, it, it's just such a gift to have those connections with the, the students and where the work clicks it can be transformative uh, to some of their lives as their eyes open to you know a different career path. So overall, I would just say you know two thumbs up, uh, and that it's worth the the effort. And you know, like any worthwhile relationship, right? You you have to put in some work, or you have to deal with some issues that can come up. And uh, you know, you roll up your sleeves and you get past it and keep going. And uh, this has been that. You know, I ended up. I mean, just to let you know, when I was at law school, what was going on is I came in as an engineer and. I started getting shocked at some of the things that were going on, the, the, the use of like books for research instead of electronic or the way that uh, a lot of the journals were selected instead of like having anonymous peer reviewed 
submissions. And I am when I give a talk on an engineer's journey through the legal system, I start off by just comparing like a law firm with working at Google and in terms of incentive structures or, you know, kind of just what passes for good work or, or the way that productivity is measured. It's got to be night and day. There are a lot of differences and there are some similarities, right? People work really hard. They're really bright. There's certain role for rules within both computer science and law, a logical reasoning. So there, there are a lot of overlaps and quite a lot of differences in terms of culture. One of the main things would be like in a startup, you're getting incentives for the company doing well versus the billable hour at a law firm. And, and that creates very, very mixed incentives, a very different rationale for, you know, measuring productivity by how many hours you're billing is insane to me. Measuring productivity in engineering is how much good code are you producing in an hour. So we could switch productivity in law to encourage efficiency while maintaining quality by saying something like, how long does it take you to write a winning brief? And uh, I think I'm just seeing that there, there, there seems to be a hesitation to move in that direction for whatever reason. But at the class, what happened in law school, sorry, I kind of, I, I, I went off on a tangent, but as I started looking to see why there was a slow uptake of technology, it led me to things like Innovator's Dilemma. It led me to a lot of other, it led me to like billable hour or partnership model. It led me to bureaucracy of courts, et cetera. And so I ended up putting a bunch of things together in terms of, uh, well, I wanted to teach legal informatics. I wanted to, I wanted to teach the data structure and algorithms of law. I wanted, I, I still want there to be a PhD program in legal informatics in the country, similar to what we see in medical informatics, where you get cross training and you're, you're doing a whole lot of just cross training and, and cross work. And, and there's lots of room for dissertations. And that's just been difficult to get to. It's quite a long haul to get there. And uh, I thought the textbook was crucial in order to kind of at least give a structure. So I wrote the textbook on, uh, you know, with my co-editors on legal informatics and made sure to include in there a chapter on technology's impact on legal philosophy. And the reason for that was to make sure that academicians knew that the topic of legal technology was not just a practice area. It's not just how are you managing e-discovery? There are really, really fundamental core issues in the nature of law that show up in the way we implement it. And so that was the reason I included that chapter. So give me an example of that, Ron. If you look at Lessig's uh, code, Code 2.0, where he talks about the way we regulate behavior, you, you get to a point where, for example, let's say copyright, you might want to block legal copyright for fear of illegal copyright, uh, you know, for, for, for fear of copying when you're not allowed to. And as you're able to regulate behavior through prevention of illegal behavior, and you throw into that mix the prevention of legal behavior, <laughs> uh, it's a problem and it, and it begs the question as to whether or not certain types of illegal behavior should be allowed and punished rather than prevented. So for example, if you were always able to prevent illegal activity, you would not allow for civil disobedience. But civil disobedience is central to the way that we argue that laws should be changed. And one of the rules for a legal system include dexterity. It, it includes the way that norms don't follow laws, like you know, marijuana or, or other areas where the breaking of laws can push us forward in terms of changing norms and morals and force society to take a look at the way we're doing things and as to whether or not that's really where we land 
and where we want to be from an ethics perspective. So the prevention of legal activities creates uh, an ossification of a legal system that is really counterproductive. So now we have to go back and say, well, where do we want to prevent? Like, so I, you know, in that case, there's a framework where we would say there's certain types of legal, illegal activity we do want to prevent, like murder and other types of illegal activity where we think punishment is a better way to regulate behavior, right? Because punishment, we can scale and and stage, right? Walking a dog off leash or jaywalking. So it's an example of bringing to mind all the different ways we want to regulate behavior and looking for a balance that's appropriate for the, the activity. So it's just one small example of the complexity of the way we can implement a legal system right. with technology. How do you see the role of technology changing in the world of generative AI as technology continues to advance? There's been obviously a lot of discussion about that in the legal press and in the industry over the last year. How do you view the evolution of this technology as, as it relates to delivering legal services and training lawyers? So you're asking specifically about generative AI, which I understand because I think generative AI has really generated, no pun intended, it's basically putting a stake in the ground that says AI is not just fluff. We can all use it and see firsthand that it is doing some things that are incredibly helpful. And so, okay, and that's raising issues around the, the protection of the data or it's raising issues around hallucinations and getting stuff that might be wrong and how do you check it or compliance with the answers and all that. But it really moved the needle more than anything in terms of saying to people, this isn't 10 years ago AI anymore. And it forces us to look across the spectrum at all types of AI. I think you could argue that machine learning made that jump five, 10 years ago, right? Like, I think you right. you, you guys are using it. Uh, yeah, that's right. Cyparth, both Cyparth and Littler are using this in terms of actuarial tables, for example, to predict future accidents. But in this case, you're looking at uh, potential uh, settlement ranges for employment disputes. And people are getting very, very accurate in their analysis of outcomes. So that is a form of AI. And that's been used forever. But I think sometimes what we say is, you know, like, if it's working technology, then we don't call it AI anymore. Right? AI has to be something, you know, like think about your typical free chess game on your phone as an app. I mean, that's insane compared to 20 years ago, right? Right. I, I can't come close to any of these games. <laughs> like they're playing way beyond my ability <laughs> and we don't even think twice about it, right? So I'm setting it at an easier level so that at least I have some sort of competition. So if we now go back to look at generative AI in particular, this is a language model that's used to, to generate, it can generate text, questions, briefs, any type of agreements or contracts. And uh, it's being used now increasingly to generate code, any number of things. I think that it's transformative and I think it will, it will evolve very quickly to be even better. I think that it really calls out a whole bunch of issues uh, that were already, uh, for example, in the textbook in terms of what are the quality metrics we want to use? Do we really think that UPL is appropriate at this point? Like generative AI could probably generate a contract at least as good as your worst allowable lawyer. Right. So what are we doing if we're not opening that up? UPL is going to have to go. And to me, and I've written about this, and there's a chapter in the book on measuring legal quality. The single biggest sledgehammer to the barrier of 
blocking innovation is quality metrics. It cuts across all arguments uh, for UPL or, or slow courts or whatever. Measure the quality of the work that we're doing. Like I'm working in dispute resolution. And what are the quality metrics we want to use for that? And uh, they're, they're there. So anyway, again, I go off on all these tangents because one topic will touch on 50, but AI for machine learning, AI for the language models. There's so much expert systems. There's following, you know, rules, following rules. So I just think that it, it is forcing a transformation similar to what we saw, for example, in e-discovery. And what happened with e-discovery was that the software, the scale of the problem was just way beyond anything we do by hand. The technology was good. Then people were saying, you know, or that or case law search or whatever. Oh, well, you're missing cases or you're missing documents. So then you have to go back and measure. And then you measure what was going on when you weren't using the technology, which we never measured before, only to find out that the use of technology, while not perfect, is generally speaking an improvement over what we were doing by hand. So now I want to take generative AI and I want to generate a contract. So it's not enough to say that the contract has some errors, right? The question is, what happens if you had somebody do it by hand or what, ha- you know, how are people getting their precedent contracts? How do we instill in a prompt for generative AI something that will allow us to check that or, or how do we validate this contract to make sure that we have the necessary clauses? So at some point in the not so distant future, it seems to me that a reasonable, let, let's say a, a landlord tenant, you know, residential lease, each couple of pages. There's no reason to go to a lawyer. I mean, most people don't, but you should be able to generate that with certain types of exceptions and all of that and kind of check it over pretty straightforwardly using, you know, what chat GPT or BARD or whatever, right? Why not? Right. I want to talk a little bit more about the quality because some of your work you've done is, is fascinating. But, but one observation before we do that, which is one of the experiences we've had is we've used what would be considered AI tools for a long time. Robotic process automation, machine learning, all that kind of stuff. One of the impacts of generative AI, which I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I have been surprised, is that it's accelerated the adoption curve of pre-existing tools. So they see this magic that's generative AI and they think, oh, the robots can do this now. And in many cases, the robots have been able to do it for five years or 10 years. And the, the people just haven't caught up with it. But it's accelerated the adoption curve for us anyway, for a lot of existing technologies. Yeah. Have you seen a similar pattern or am I aberrational in that respect? I think you're more in the weeds on that than I am. So I think you would see it. I'm not as directly connected there. What I do see is uh, within the field of dispute resolution and the the master, uh, Colin Rule, that I work with uh, is looking at 20 different potential areas of the application of this within disputes, whether it's asking questions, whether it's training, whether it's agreements coming up with that. Uh, mediation arbitration, right? But what you're saying doesn't surprise me at all. I think that there is a little bit of a difference though, in that increasingly these tools, for example, can generate a spreadsheet for you or something like that. And so while some of these tools might've been there, I think what's going on is that we're looking at an increasingly easy interface uh, using just natural language and voice, et cetera. That busts open those tools. Uh, So I don't know what was going on there before. So but it doesn't surprise me that people are having to take a second look. As I said, like you were using some of the machine learning stuff, what, five, 10 years already, right? Five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago. Yeah. A lot of this also, by the way, is, and this has been a trend that's been going on increasingly, is getting our hands on the data. I believe that a Fortune 100 in-house 
it probably takes a good two to three years to get their data ducks in a row so that it's then applicable to some of the machine learning things that they'd like to do. Law firms as well, and law firms are kind of still stuck, I think, having to get data in, in the, their client's format, and it's not always uh, harmonized. I think, you know, you want to look at, and it's been a long time, you want to look at, well, what is the price distribution of a deposition? Bear with me on this one. The billing codes put deposition all lumped together, but there's very different types of depositions, expert witness versus an executive who speaks for the, on behalf of the company versus just a normal witness. And we would expect very different price curves around that, right? different, different amounts of prep, maybe different quality metrics for what we were getting back. And uh, if you look at that, it's not just getting data in a row, it's getting things like billing codes in a row, because that's what it takes in order to group together like type of work in order to estimate costs appropriately so that you can get out of a billable hour. Like so you see all of those things kind of take several years to line up. And that's the point at which you can say and work very transparently with the client. Here's the price distribution of this type of work. And here's where we would propose to bill you. Right. No, that makes complete sense. This is the number of cases that we need in order to help guarantee that one outlier doesn't blow away our profit, right? That kind of thing. And I think that there, in order to get enough of that data in a row, in line and the billing in line, and all, there's several years of prep work that allow us to bust this stuff open, right? I don't know if I went too far afield from what you're asking, but no, I just, no, no, it's fascinating. All of these pieces have to be there in order for us to use these things in a way that we feel uh, is safe. We feel like the data is protected because we have obviously have a lot of concerns about that. We feel like the metrics are more or less aligned with, you know, correlated with our subjective notions of what good work is. Like there's a lot of pieces, the quality metrics as well is like, that's a tough thing. And, and, but I, what I get frustrated about is, uh, I guess I'm going off on another tangent, but this is part of getting all of this stuff working, right? It's not just the security component. It's not just getting the data there. It's not just the billing codes. At the end of the day, it's how are you measuring good work that you want to train against? Right. And so the quality metrics, it just simply can't be the case that we don't measure legal quality. Otherwise, nobody would be able to get a bar exam score. It's just false. The issue around quality metrics is that it is measurable. You know, you can overuse or underuse them. You want something that's correlated to your subjective notion. So at least when you're improving the metric, you have reason to think you're improving the quality. And it, it doesn't answer everything. Right. Like if I try to measure a good painting, I can tell you something about color distribution, or I can tell you some sort of you know line dis distribution. That's not the do all and be all for what a good painting is supposed to be. So you don't want to not use it because then there's nothing to train to, and you don't want to use it too much beyond. So there's a balance in there. There's a sweet spot for how we would use quality metrics, but we need them. They need to be there. It pushes the industry in a particular direction. People should be competing on value, which is lowering costs while maintaining or raising quality. The painting analogy is a fascinating one. And I've, I've heard you use that before. And I think it's a great analogy because you can use a, a great painter, a Rembrandt, a Da Vinci or whatever, for the techniques, for the way in which they execute it. Yep. But not everybody can create a Mona Lisa. There's something unique about that. Not everybody wants a Mona Lisa. Uh, that's exactly their, right. For their application. And, but I think that part of the issue here is for legal work in particular, and you can say paintings as well, if you were trying to automate the process of generating a painting or 
filling some space with artwork of a particular type? Could I measure the degree to which certain pieces of art are kind of within the genre of art deco, for example, or Victorian? And I think, you know, we could kind of get a handle on that, whether it's furniture, the way we tile, uh, some of the art pieces. So, you know, uh, I, I think in, in the book, what I use as an, as an analogy is uh, qualities of design process. So let me just tell that that little one, that little story would be if you went to somebody who works in a lab and they're constantly changing memory chips from one board to another, and you ask them, what is a good quality memory chip? They'll tell you that they need titanium in the pins. They need strong pins because the pins keep breaking. And that's really true for somebody who's working in a lab who's constantly pulling board, you know, pins, that, <laughs> chips on and off boards. But that's not 99.9% of the way we use memory. What most of us care about is mean time between failure of the chip. So if you, in other words, that the first one was a very valid quality metric for its intended use. And we have to keep in mind that we need quality metrics, but that the quality metric is a design issue. It's an ethnographic study in the way we want certain types of work product to serve us. And so we're going to tune appropriately and design a metric to give us quality for that particular set of applications, right? Right. So in the couple minutes we've got left, tell us about your work with ODR. What is the organization and what are you doing for them? So I, I, finished, uh, I finished the book. The, the, the pandemic kind of uh, stopped uh, the teaching. I was flying out to Harvard you know, every other week and, and teaching two days a week there. You know, I don't know if I'll do it again. Uh, it was super fun. I did it for several years, but that ended and they, they shut that down during the pandemic and we haven't restarted me. And the book is done. And so then I kind of wanted to re-engage and I wanted to, I don't, you know, I'm not an ivory tower type person. And uh, one thing led to another. I got asked to go to a conference in Texas on dispute resolution and it seemed like a good area to look at applications. So the thing about, so I, the work that I'm doing in particular is to look at the ways we might apply AI generally to dispute resolution. And part of the issue that has come up with AI is, is what it's able to generate and how quickly. And, you know, you, you, you listen to like there was an interview with Eric Schmidt, you know, the past uh, former uh, CEO of Google. And he said that, you know, future world wars, or whatever, will be fought in you know, milliseconds. As the AI kicks in, takes off, takes down, you know, communication systems, blah, blah, blah. And as far as I'm concerned, the, the implication there for me is that we want dispute resolution to be functioning in microseconds. Like I want to de-escalate a dispute as fast as any other AI might generate one. I want us to get in in terms of, you know, what is the nature of the dispute? What's the, what's the type of taxonomy of disputes? What is a good mediation or, or arbitration process? The other thing is that you look at the access to justice problem and how many millions of people are just not getting heard, whether here, India, many countries are having a huge problem with it. We're not going to ever have enough lawyers to solve that problem. And increasingly, the AI is doing a better job. As I look to see how we apply quality metrics, the issue is we need to unlock these tools once and for all to allow people to try to come to an agreement to suggest transparently potential ways of resolving a dispute, asking people the right questions. Again, it, we can even think about arbitration in terms of down the road, some form of automated process, so long as we allow people to appeal. And so, but the implication here is that as we 
apply AI across the board to different types of disputes, we need to change some of the procedural rules so that we are working to solve a problem automatically. Uh, even within, um, bear with me, as, as we look at mediation, we don't want anybody getting screwed who just needs to get out of, let's say, an abusive relationship or something. So we care about process fairness and outcome fairness. We want to make sure that people are getting an objective kind of fair outcome as well as a sense of a subjective uh, process there. So if we apply this to arbitration and it's a forced uh, resolution, how do we inform everybody that there is a range of settlement ranges here and that you're within that area? Then if you want to argue or appeal, the appeal is not just on this case. Really what the appeal is saying, which I find fascinating, your model of dispute resolution is leaving out a material fact or not giving it enough weight. So I'm not just asking you to, to change based on what I'm doing. I'm actually asking you to change the factors you're using in your AI or the material way you're weighting them to give me a different outcome. That's in essence what we're doing when we appeal to like a Supreme Court. It's, it's an amazing process, but we're automating the whole thing. So again, the quality metrics, the, the settlement ranges. So this is looking at dispute resolution across the spectrum, whether it's family, e-commerce, workplace, you, know, you name it, and looking for ways that we can inject a process that gets us to a resolution of disputes with much less cost while having the quality metrics there to show that we're doing a good job and at some point or another, we need to kind of revamp the way that the courts are working. How do you deal with in, let's take mediation, mm -hmm. there are, whether it's family law, I deal with this in employment law, there's an emotional component oftentimes. There's an emotional component to it where somebody feels they've been betrayed, somebody feels they're, they're scared. And part of the resolution process is giving them a, a voice, giving them the opportunity to be heard. Absolutely. That's what we call process fairness. Right. How do you incorporate that into a technology-based dispute resolution system? So this starts getting to some of what you we, we started with, with the generative AI. In order to work with people on process fairness, a lot of what you look for... So mediation is a core example. As, as you look at the process typically within mediation, so a lot of what happens, like for example, you'll have one person mirror what they heard the other person say is the problem. If you can get both people to say each other's story, you've basically landed on a, on a way of getting through the, the dispute, right? So think about that for language models. All of a sudden, we have these really interesting tools that can work with language directly. Those models are actually, in my opinion, key to opening up the area around process fairness and the empathy. We can help people let them know whether or not they're understanding the other person's perspective. That's interesting. Fascinating work that we can be doing with process fairness that really, I'm not as concerned about asking the right questions from the AI. I'm not as concerned about coming up with an agreement. That all has been going on. What I, what I really think is interesting, if we're trying to move things online and we're trying to scale up, we need to make sure that people are absolutely feeling heard, whether it's by an arbitrator or whether you know, or a neutral like software type judge, or whether it's mediation, and we're making sure before we go to the next step. I'm sorry, but you're not characterizing what the other side is saying they're having issues with. We need to nail that first, and then we can go on to trying to resolve the problem. Now that's not a requirement, but you can see that that facilitates a lot of getting people on the same page, right? That's fascinating work. That's really 
I know we're out of time and I appreciate you taking the time, but Ron, you're doing such interesting work. It's going to be great to watch you continue to take this to next levels. Fingers crossed on that one. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks for your time, Ron. Oh, I love talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.